0: Among soccer fans, everyone knows about the so-called Hand of God goal, scored by the world-famous Argentine footballer Diego Maradona during Argentina's quarterfinal match against England in the 1986 World Cup. The goal was illegal under soccer rules because Maradona used his hand to punch the ball into the net and score. In soccer, you can't use your hands. But because the referees did not have a clear view of the play, and video assistant referee technology did not exist at the time. It stood to give Argentina a 1to-0 lead. Argentina went on to win two to one with Maradona scoring a second goal known as the goal of the century and a route to claiming the World Cup. The goal's name derives from Maradona's initial response on whether he scored it illegally, stating it was made a little with the head of Maradona and a little. With the hand of God. Sometimes when we go through the challenges of our lives or are disappointed, discouraged, tired, sad, and upset, we wonder if God really exists or not because He doesn't seem to be tangibly helping us solve our problems. We ask why God doesn't intervene more or show Himself more real and evident, perhaps to give us a hand in helping us achieve what we want. But my friends, our Lord is always helping and aiding us, just as He promised. We may just need to see it through a different perspective to see God's invisible hand at work in our lives. Let's discover four ways that God's hands are evident in our lives. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 18 as we study verses 1 to 28. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 28, as we continue our Sermon Series Voyager studying the journeys of the Apostle Paul as recorded in the book of Acts. As you're turning to this passage, remember, when we last talked about Paul, he was in Athens, and it exemplified how we are to engage the culture. On his second missionary journey, he had then left Athens and was on his way to Corinth, and this is where we pick up the story in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 18. I read now verses 1 to 4. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks." The Bible tells us that Paul made his way from Athens to Corinth. Corinth was the largest city in Greece at that time, 20 times larger than Athens, and a center for trade and commerce. Apparently, Timothy was sent to Thessalonica, and Silas was somewhere in Macedonia, and for now, Paul was alone. Now, in the city, Paul met a Jewish couple named Priscilla and Aquila because the emperor Claudius had ordered non-Roman citizen Jews to leave Rome it seemed that they were already Christians, as there is no account of their conversion to the ministry of Paul. Anyway, this couple was in the tent-making or repairer of leather goods trade, which was a skill and trade that the Apostle Paul also knew. You see, as a rabbi, Paul would have had to pick a skill which was repairing leather in addition to his studies in the Hebrew Scriptures. It seemed that Paul had financial needs while in Corinth, and he found work in the shop of Priscilla and Aquila. As a missionary, Paul worked hard to support what he was called to do, which was to evangelize to the Jews and the Gentiles. He did not expect that others would take care of his personal needs or that God would give him free handouts just because he was doing evangelistic work. He worked hard for his own personal needs. This is a reminder that doing the work of the Lord requires sacrifice, and hard work. A comfortable lifestyle is not what is expected for one who is in the Lord's work, whatever his calling. But God divinely allowed Paul to find this couple in this large city so that he would have a job to provide for his financial needs. We see clearly in verse 4 that Paul's primary mission and call was clear. He was laser-focused on the task of bringing the gospel to the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles. This tent-making leather repair job was a secondary means by which to support his primary calling as an evangelist. But my friends, you know, this is not supposed to be unique to Paul. It should be the same for all of us. Our occupation and profession, even as homemakers, is a secondary means by which we support our primary calling as an evangelist and disciple to the world we are called to reach out to. We should see our work as an enabling means by which we can propagate our primary mission in life, which is to share Christ with others. Simply put, we are to serve as a witness for Christ in whatever profession He has placed us in. When we have this perspective, then we will see any job the Lord puts us in, even if it entails challenges or hard work, as being part of His divine mission He has for us and find joy and purpose in our work and even in our studies. I read now verses 5 to 8. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all of his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. The Bible tells us soon after, Silas and Timothy joined Paul in Corinth, and when they came, Paul no longer needed to work as a tent maker because perhaps they came back with some money to help sustain their daily needs. Therefore, Paul shifted most of his time back to sharing the gospel to the people of Corinth. But many of the Jews in the city rejected the gospel message, and so Paul turned his attention more on the Gentiles, noting through his words and the action of shaking dust from his garments that he had fulfilled his responsibility to the Jews, but they had rejected the message, so now he would spend more time with the Gentiles. However, in spite of the rejection of the gospel message by the Jews, God encouraged Paul by having him meet a person named Justice who was most likely a Gentile with his Roman name who came to know the Lord and welcomed Paul into his house. Ironically, this warm welcome was into Justice's house right next to the Jewish synagogue whose people had rejected him and his message. It is as if God was telling Paul, don't be discouraged, even if many rejected you there are those who still accept you and the life-changing message you bring. The Bible also tells us that the leader of the Jewish synagogue named Crispus and his entire family, along with many Corinthians, came to know Christ and publicly professed their inward faith through water baptism. The Lord was clearly showing Paul that he was not alone in the city. Even with many rejections, the life-transforming message he brought about Jesus Christ still found receptive ears, even among prominent people. Now look with me at verses 9 to 11. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in the city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the Word of God among them. Here the Bible tells us that God knew that Paul's new ministry in Corinth wasn't going as smoothly as perhaps he had hoped. He had to work to afford living in the city and met numerous rejections, but God encouraged Paul in a vision by telling him to press on and to faithfully continue the gospel work. The Lord told Paul he was to continue speaking and not to remain silent or to be afraid. Why? For three reasons. First is because God is with him, who should always serve as our assurance that we are never alone. My friends, God is always with us as our companion. The second is because God is divinely protecting Paul. Paul would not be physically harmed in the city of Corinth so he could sleep well at nights and be assured that God would protect him from physical harm. And third, because God had many people in the city, either meaning that there were other believers in Corinth like Priscilla and Aquila, and Paul was not alone, or that God knew because of his omniscience and sovereignty that many would come to place their trust in Jesus like Crispus. So even with the initial rejection of the gospel message, Paul was to press on because many would respond positively. The emphasis of the Lord's encouragement to Paul was to remember that he was not alone, and for him to press on and persevere. This vision must have encouraged the Apostle Paul greatly. That the Bible tells us he stayed in Corinth for 18 months, preaching and teaching the Word of God, and was able to establish a church there. You see, from Priscilla and Aquila to Justice and Crispus, the Lord had special people in this large city to help and encourage Paul in a time of trial and discouragement. And this is our first biblical principle as it relates to God's invisible hand. Biblical principle number one. God's invisible hand is seen through special people He uses to help us in our time of need. God's invisible hand is seen through special people He uses to help us in our time of need. My friends, even though we may not think God is doing anything to help us, because we still have our problems We have to work hard, and things aren't moving faster. We can see His hands through the people He brings into our lives to help us and to encourage us during those challenging times. We remember how God placed Queen Esther in the courts of the Persian kingdom to save her very people. She was in the right place at the right time by God, placed there for such a time as this. I'm reminded of this often told fable. A lion was awakened from sleep by a mouse running over his face. Rising up angrily, he caught the mouse and was about to kill him when the mouse said, if you spare my life, I will repay your kindness someday. The lion laughed and let him go. He thought, how can a mouse help me, the mighty lion? It happened shortly after this that the lion was caught by some hunters who bound him with strong ropes. The mouse Recognizing the lion's roar, came, gnawed through the rope, and set him free. The mouse then exclaimed, You did not think that I would be able to help you. You now see it is possible for even a lion to need the help of a mouse. My friends, help doesn't always come in the ways we envision it, or even in the people we expect it to come from, but it is help nevertheless. Paul's help came in different forms, like finding a job when he needed money instead of getting a free handout, or getting a welcome place to stay and rest instead of finding it in the place he had hoped for in the synagogue. Help from God doesn't always come in the form of getting a lot of money, health suddenly restored, or problems and trials disappearing. But it often comes through people. It comes through people he sends to help and encourage us in our time of need. This is how God's invisible hand is at work. I read now verses 12 to 16. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. The Bible tells us the unbelieving Jews of Corinth brought Paul before the proconsul Gallio and accused Paul of trying to convert people to a new religion that was not allowed by Roman law. You see, to ensure harmony and peace in this vast empire, the Romans allowed for certain religious practices as long as it didn't contradict with their own polytheism or religion with many gods. But they did tolerate some exclusive monotheistic religions like the Jewish faith because the Romans valued antiquity, and for them, the Jewish faith was an ancient religion. So, you see, as long as the Romans thought Christianity was a sect or offshoot of Judaism, it would be allowed under Roman law and could be practiced without persecution. Therefore, this accusation by the Jews of Corinth before the Roman proconsul would carry tremendous ramifications. If you know Roman history, you will know that Gallio was not just any proconsul. He was greatly respected in the Roman Empire. His brother was the famous stoic philosopher Seneca, who was emperor Nero's tutor. As a proconsul or governor of an influential Roman province like Achaea, his decisions would serve as a guide for other proconsuls across the Roman Empire. The Bible tells us when the charge was brought before Gallio by the Jews, before Paul could even defend himself, Gallio already decided that this matter was a religious theological issue, and it didn't concern him because as proconsul, his responsibility was to judge criminal cases or if something violated Roman law. And so he refused to hear this case any further and said that this was an internal religious issue. Essentially, Gallio's decision or verdict protected Christianity throughout the Roman Empire for many years. Historically, his decision didn't legitimize Christianity in the Roman Empire, which would happen with Emperor Constantine in the early 4th century. But his decision put Christianity as a sect of Judaism and with it full protection by Roman law in the province of Achaia and most likely in the rest of the Roman world. Even though we know Christianity was completely different from Judaism, and the Jews of that time wanted Christianity completely disassociated from them for practicality and legal purposes. They were grouped as one. That's why until Nero blamed Christians for the burning of Rome in AD 64, for more than 10 years, the Romans tolerated Christianity and the gospel spread more because of this decision. Now look with me in verses 17 to the first part of verse 18. Then all the Greeks took Sostenus, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things, so Paul still remained a good while. The Bible tells us the Greek audience who were hearing this accusation and the decision of Gallio at the Bema, or the place of judgment in the marketplace, took Sostenus, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him. Sostenus probably succeeded Crispus as the leader of the synagogue after Crispus. Converted to Christianity. And Gallio allowed this beating to take place, perhaps so that it would discourage the Jews from in the future bothering him with the religious differences of opinion with the Christians. Because of what happened, Paul was able to stay in Corinth for a long time, safe and secured. What transpired is a beautiful picture of God's invisible hand at work. He used an unjust accusation against Paul to bring about security and protection for Christians across the region to allow the gospel work to continue unabated. That is the sovereign power of our Lord, to be able to redeem even the worst of plans or the most evil plans of man. I'm reminded of what Joseph, as prime minister of Egypt, told his brothers who had sold him into slavery in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. But as for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. You meant it as evil, but God meant it for good. And my friends, this is our second biblical principle concerning God's working in our lives. Biblical principle number two. God's invisible hand is seen through how He can redeem the worst of plans. God's invisible hand is seen through how He can redeem the worst of plans. Whatever situation we may put ourselves in or even what other people put us in, God can redeem it so that it turns out to be the best for all involved. I'm sure that when Paul was initially hauled off to Gallio to be judged, he perhaps may have been thinking, Lord, why? I'm doing your work. I'm trying to keep it together in spite of the rejection and the persecution. And you allow something like this? Didn't you just say you would protect me and to be with me? Why would you allow something like this? But then for Paul to see how God took it from there, to get a verdict that not only helped him and his team, but had ramifications for other Christians throughout the Roman Empire without him even saying one word. This is God's sovereign ability to redeem even the worst of plans. Even with our Savior, Jesus Christ, the most evil plans of man to have been killed through crucifixion was instead redeemed so that through the death of Jesus, it brought eternal life and salvation to all people of all ages. My friends, God is at work to orchestrate something good to come out of our trials and challenges Romans chapter 8, verse 28 holds true, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. I read now the second half of verse 18 all the way to verse 22. Then He took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with Him. He had His hair cut off at Sincrea, for He had taken a vow, and He came to Ephesus and left them there but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. The Bible tells us Paul then set sail to Asia Minor from Greece. At Ephesus, he left Priscilla and Aquila there and returned to Caesarea, where he then went to Jerusalem and then back to Antioch. Now, we're not told what Silas and Timothy did, but this ends the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Now, I want to point out two things. First, Paul cut his hair and made a vow at the Greek port city of Sincreia. We're not told what this vow is about, but most likely it is a personal vow with the Lord. Paul is not under the Old Testament laws, but has the freedom to do something like this. Many have speculated what vow this could have been, but we'll just have to ask Paul when we see him in heaven. The second thing is that Paul is seemingly on a personally set schedule. He told the Ephesians who wanted him to stay longer that he had to be at Jerusalem for an upcoming feast. Now, we're not told the reason for him keeping to this schedule, but it is something Paul feels he must do. Of course, in verse 21, he hopes to visit them again if the Lord allows. Taking this vow and being in Jerusalem at a certain time were not things that God specifically told Paul he must do. So the natural question we therefore ask is, is God's guiding hand involved in these personal decisions and actions? And I would propose that even in our freedom of choice, God's invisible hand can be seen. Let me explain. When we talk about God's invisible hand in our lives, it doesn't mean He controls all aspects of our actions and makes our decisions for us. Most of the time, God gives us the freedom to live our lives plan our lives, and to make decisions based on what we deem best as long as it does not contradict any biblical principles. Meaning, we have the freedom to choose what we want to order from a menu. We have the choice to exercise or not. We can pick whether we want to vacation in Korea or Japan based on our own preference, or we can choose whatever college to attend based on practical considerations. But God's invisible hand is evident in this freedom of choice that nothing will happen to us that He doesn't ultimately allow in His sovereignty, even in the wise or foolish choices we make. Now listen carefully. This truth isn't a license to take risks in our lives and tempt faith because God may allow us to experience the consequences of our stupidity. But this truth should be a great comfort for us knowing that as we make what we believe to be the best decisions based on our wisdom and prayer, we don't have to worry so much or even second-guess ourselves once we've made the decision, knowing that God's invisible hand will ultimately protect us and not experiencing anything He does not allow. And this is our third biblical principle, biblical principle number three. God's invisible hand is seen through the protected freedom He gives us. God's invisible hand is seen through the protected freedom He gives us. My friends, we have freedom in Christ to make any decisions that do not directly contradict any biblical principle. And we have the peace of mind once we make a decision to know that we are protected and that nothing will happen to us that God does not allow As Paul made his decision to make a vow and travel on a set schedule, there were many things that could have affected his schedule, like a shipwreck he experienced three in his lifetime, or circumstances that may cause the vow to not be fulfilled. But he didn't worry about what could or could not happen because he trusted in God's hand of guidance and protection to allow it to happen or not if it's his will. I know this is a deeper theological concept, but a truth that if you can understand will allow you to really enjoy life instead of always suffering from decision paralysis or worrying about every aspect of life that may or may not happen. Let me give you an example. Many of you know that I enjoy cycling, but there are inherent dangers of biking around Metro Manila because of the traffic situation and road conditions. But a wise person mitigates those hazards by riding with a group wearing a helmet and reflective clothing, drinking enough fluid in the hot weather, and having enough lights if riding at night. But I could always worry if something could happen to me or not and choose not to bike. But that's a terrible way to live, to keep second-guessing yourself and living in fear. So this past Saturday evening, after a long week, I wanted to ride to clear my head and invited a few folks along. As usual, we prayed before we left, and set out for a quick ride from QC to BGC. Now, I could have thought, I'm guest preaching at another church the next day, at a local seminary on Tuesday. I have to play in a badminton tournament, and I have to speak at a retreat, so I better not bike because of the possibility of an accident and could hurt myself, so I should just stay home. However, I had the freedom to bike knowing I wasn't taking any unnecessary risk took all precautions by riding with a group of friends, and had finished all of my ministry responsibilities. But guess what? On the way to BGC, going downhill on Pioneer Street, with my right-of-way, an L300 van suddenly swerved in front of me, and to avoid crashing head-on into the van, I also swerved and quickly applied my brakes, but lost control of my bike, and the next thing I knew, I'm staring up at the beautiful moon and stars with an object, Curling above me, which was my Android phone launching from my back pocket, maybe 15 meters in front of me. I landed painfully on my back, and thankfully not on my head. And when the adrenaline wore off, I felt like maybe I'd cracked some ribs or collapsed the lung because of how painful it was to breathe. I know that many of you are thinking right now Pastor Stephen shouldn't have gone biking. He was tempting fate with so many speaking commitments. But if there was no accident at all, all of you would have said, I'm so glad our pastor is biking. It's good for his health and a great exercise and a good way to de-stress and clear the mind. Anyway, thanks to my riding friends and some church friends who took me to the ER of the Metro North Hospital, who one of our church doctors was finishing up a surgery there and attended to me, and there I was able to be looked after. Surprisingly, no one was in the ER, and I was able to quickly get x-rays and an ECG which showed that nothing was broken. However, something was seen in the ECG, non-accident related, that seemed to be off, and a second test was run again in the ER showing the same thing. So I'm currently in the process of getting more tests to find out if there's anything heart-wise I need to look into. Now, some of you may be thinking, maybe this is the so-called blessing in disguise that you had this accident because it forced you to get a test which you normally wouldn't have gotten to perhaps find an underlying health issue which needed to be addressed. You can see the type of mind games one begins to play of, should I or should I not have? And I did play these mind games as I was wincing in pain, even with two pain medications, having to sleep sitting up Because it was too painful to lay down. Was it wise for me to have ridden or not that evening? But take away all the head games, and ultimately, at the end of the day, I went biking on Saturday night because I needed to exercise and clear my head. And there was nothing wrong with that, and it was the right decision. And God's invisible hand of protection was there, so that even in my major accident, I broke no bones, and perhaps may encourage me to make further lifestyle changes. So praise be to God, even with the accident. So once my bruises have healed, and I'm well enough, Lord willing, I will bike again this week, because God's invisible hand is seen through the protected freedom He gives us. As the late pastor Charles Stanley often shared about handling trials, especially dealing with difficult people, he said God spoke to him and said, everything that happens to you is coming from me no matter who says it or what they do i want you to see this as coming from me and not from them and whatever happens you look to me because i'm in control and charles stanley said that set me so free i read now verses 23 to 26 after he had spent some time there he departed and went over the region of galatia and phrygia in order "'strengthening all the disciples. "'Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, "'an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, "'came to Ephesus. "'This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, "'and being fervent in spirit, "'he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, "'though he only knew the baptism of John. "'So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. "'When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, "'they took him aside and explained to him "'the way of God more accurately.'" These verses tell us what happened in Ephesus while Paul presumably was in Antioch reporting about his second missionary journey. There was a Jewish Christian named Apollos who was very gifted as an eloquent and powerful teacher of God's Word. However, during this transitional time of the formation of the early church, there were some things he was not up to date with in terms of the progressive revelation of our Lord. And we see that when Priscilla and Aquila who were left in Ephesus, found Apollos, they took the time to reach out to him and disciple him so that he would be able to be a more effective teacher of God's Word. This was a couple who took the time to disciple others, and Apollos was a man humble enough to take correction. Verse 27 and 28, And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. From Ephesus in Asia Minor, the Bible tells us Apollos crossed the Aegean Sea to Greece, to the province of Achaia, specifically Corinth, where he served to build up and encourage the Christians who were there, and a very powerful teaching and evangelistic ministry similar to Paul's. This mention of Apollos in the midst of describing Paul's many journeys illustrated that there were other men and women whom God raised up and used mightily for his ministry. You see, Paul was not alone in the gospel work. There were others all throughout the Roman Empire that God had raised up and would raise up, including Apollos, who would do his work. This clearly illustrates our fourth principle for God's invisible hand. Number four, God's invisible hand is seen through others. He raises up, so you are not alone. God's invisible hand is seen through others. He raises up, so you're not alone. My friends, you and I need to remember we're not alone. Remember in First Kings chapter 19, when the prophet Elijah was discouraged because he thought he was the only one who still worked for the living God, under the oppressive, sinful rulership of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. God revealed this to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. God was telling Elijah, You're not the only one. There are 7,000 others who remain faithful to me. You and I are not the only ones. There are many who are doing the work of God. I like this story of a young boy who went to the local store with his mother. The store owner, a kind man, passed him a large jar of candy and invited him to help himself to a handful of candy. Uncharacteristically, the boy demurred. He held back and shied away. So the shop owner put his hand in the jar and took out a handful of candy For the boy. When outside, the boy's mother asked him why he'd suddenly become so shy and wouldn't take a handful of candy when offered. The boy replied, Mom, because I knew his hand is much bigger than mine. I love that, knowing that God's hand is much bigger than mine, that in God's hands, there are many who are working for him. I realize I'm not all by myself, God has others in this great kingdom of His doing His great work. So I can be encouraged, we can be encouraged that we are not alone. Let me end with the story. An elderly couple was beginning to forget little things around the house. They were afraid that this could be dangerous, as one of them may forget to turn off the stove and thus cause a fire. So they decided to go see their physician to get some help. Their doctor told them that many people their age find it useful to write themselves little notes as reminders. The couple thought this sounded wonderful and left the doctor's office very pleased with the advice. When they got home, the wife said, "'Dear, will you please go to the kitchen and get me a dish of ice cream? And why don't you write that down so you won't forget?' "'Nonsense,' said the husband. "'I can remember a dish of ice cream.'" Well, said the wife, I'd also like some strawberries on it. You better write that down because I know you'll forget. Don't be silly, replied the husband. A dish of ice cream and some strawberries. I can remember that. Okay, dear, but I'd like you to put some whipped cream on top. Now you really better write it down, said the wife. Come now. My memory is not that bad, said the husband. No problem. A dish of ice cream with strawberries and whipped cream. With that, the husband shut the kitchen door behind him. He emerged from the kitchen about 15 minutes later with a plate of bacon and eggs. The wife took one look at the plate, glanced up at her husband and said, I knew you wouldn't get it right. Where's the toast bread that I asked for? Oh, my friends, the simple things we forget because we don't write it down and take it to heart. While we say we will always remember God's presence At the first sign of trouble, we forget that He's always with us and even accuse Him of abandoning us. But we should remember that, number one, God's invisible hand is seen through special people He uses to help us in our time of need. Number two, God's invisible hand is seen through how He can redeem the worst of plans. Number three, God's invisible hand is seen through the protected freedom He gives us. Number four, God's invisible hand is seen through others. He raises up, so you are not alone. My friends, God's hand of protection and help is with us all the days of our lives because we are His children and He is our Heavenly Father. He never takes His eyes off of us. So be encouraged. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for reminding us That even though we may not acknowledge your presence in our lives or we may even question whether you are there we are reminded that you are at work your invisible hand is helping us in our lives by setting us people who will help us in our time of need by encouraging us knowing that there is no plan that cannot be redeemed by you Where we are reminded that we have the freedom to live this life knowing that we are under your protection and that we're not alone because you raise up others in this life journey with the same mission as us. I pray that we would be motivated and challenged to live this life for you, knowing that your invisible hand is very present in our lives. May you bless your people who have heard your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Mm-hmm.